Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. John Berger calls himself a musical linguist. He's a graduate of SUNY Purchase and has worked with artists such as Aretha Franklin, Little Anthony and the Imperials, The Crystals, Garden State Philharmonic, and the Harrisburg Symphony, just to name a few. He's worked on shows such as Next to Normal, In the Heights, Jersey Boys, Tale of Two Cities, Les Mis, Pirate Queen, The Color Purple, The Grinch, Fiddler on the Roof, Gypsy, Imaginary Friends, Flower Drum Song, Suzical, Cats, Saturday Night Fever, Hello Dolly, My Fair Lady, Summer, and Jersey Boys. He's a fellow Peisty endorser and is currently on the road with the Roy Orbison Buddy Holly Hologram Tour. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is John Berger. Thank you for taking time out of your tour to be a part of this podcast. Thank you, Clayton. I really appreciate you uh, including me in this amazing uh, thing you're doing. And uh, yeah, Before we started recording, we were talking about the, the joys of traveling and sometimes the perils of, of being a touring musician. But we caught up with each other in Toronto. You were on a tour and right now you're on a tour. Tell me what you're doing. Uh, I'm doing the Rock and Roll Dreams tour. It's a live band backing uh, holograms of uh, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison. And uh, when I saw you in Toronto, that was the first U.S. tour. Uh, and that version was, uh, we picked up a 50-piece orchestra in each city. So the, the conductor, Martin Axe, and myself traveled with the show. And we, we re- rehearsed, much like with Broadway tours, we rehearsed the orchestra, uh, three, three or three-hour rehearsal in each town, and then did the show and then moved on. And uh, so this is now the third tour. Uh, the, of course, there's two, 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 uh, two years of it, uh, I think, the shutdown, but uh, they came, to our surprise, they came back. So the last, this last tour and this tour now is with the, just the rhythm section. Um, uh, we had uh, seven pieces on the last tour, and they needed to scale down a little bit uh, this time. So we're now just a four-piece band, uh, uh, guitar, bass, drums, and, uh, and a singer. And we're backing up these holograms. And the, the basic idea of this tour, which is kind of interesting, is what would it be like to see these iconic pioneers of you know, rock and roll today? And you, know, you really have to see it. It's hard to describe. You just have to see it. it. It really looks like they're on stage. And the band's lit up. And they want us to be really animated to bring life to the show. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's, it's, it's quite interesting, uh, you know, having spent a career backing all kinds of singers and cabaret acts and stars and, you know, to be back in a, a hologram who never even knows my name or talks to me or if I decide to play a, a, a cool fill, they never turn around and say, what are you doing? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> so that's what, <laughs> kind of what it is. So you never get yelled at by the, uh, the performer, like you're rushing, you're, you're dragging, <laughs> none of that. Well, that, that's a whole other thing. Uh, just uh, really briefly, I'll describe an interesting thing that happened with this show. Is these are original? They're using original recordings of these performers. Um, I, I, I'm not at liberty to discuss anymore about the technology, but nonetheless, uh, Martin Axe, who did the arrangements for this, um, he did the had the very challenging task to do what's called uh, a, a click mapping. So. Imagine having to put a click track to recordings that never had a click track. So with the, using a computer, you basically figure out 
where the tempo shifts are and you try to find a, a sort of middle ground and keep it as smooth as possible. So what this means is we're playing with a click track that's constantly moving. And uh, so it's, it's something that most people will not experience and, uh, in their lives. And it's, it's quite a challenge. Um, I learned uh, that uh, Roy Orbison was a very solid rhythm guitar player. And uh, so his time is actually quite good for the most part. And it's just, you know, naturally, I mean, there, there are plenty of recordings with our favorite people that have no click track. And if you, you know, it, the tempo shifts a little bit naturally. However, the young Buddy Holly, who sadly died at 22, wrote all these iconic songs. His all, he's like, like all over the place. So in rehearsal, it's, it's kind of maddening. And then you kind of learn, you're listening to these tracks and they're also, there were, there were, there were some tracks we're playing with. They kept some of the orchestral stuff. And now we have some piano and guitar on there. Their guitarist uh, had, had overdubbed, the Martin had overdubbed. So we have to figure out where do we play with the vocals? Where do we ignore the click? Where do we, you know, and some tunes will, there's a, a count off for each tune. The show st starts and stops, first act, second act. It just goes. So you get a, you'll get a, a count off, and there's one ballad. It's like one, two, one, two, three, four. And the vocal comes in at a completely different tempo. So, you know, after doing it night after night, but in rehearsals, you're just like, you, you, we, we come, come out of rehearsals like exhausted. Like, I guess my time stinks because you're like, so it's very challenging that way. We've been doing the show long enough uh, uh, that we know, and we just, my friends have come to see the show and say it, it feels seamless, but it's still, there's still times when it's, it's like a real concentration burn because this click is just, it's following the singer, you know? So, you know, and uh, we've all experienced this playing shows. It's like, you know, singers sometimes can, can sort of do their own thing, what they call backphrasing, which I've often called bad time, but, you know, nonetheless, you want to make it feel smooth. So that's the long and short of it. That's the challenge of this gig that, that people come to see the show have no idea what we're dealing with. But it's at this point, it's we just play music and we our job is to bring life to the show and make it feel good. And so, you know, that's in a nutshell what I'm doing now. How long is the tour going out? It's the to total of two months. We, we come back March 20th. Um, this was booked pretty last minute. So it, there's a lot of traveling involved and, and not that many shows. Previous tours, we did like 26 cities in six weeks. You know, it's a lot. So uh, they fortunately, I have a, you know, I have a gig. I, it's great. They were able to put this together, um, and uh, shows going well. It's actually selling better than it has before. And uh, they are planning some dates in the future. They have some things in the books. You know, maybe in the fall. So you know, hopefully there'll be more work. So I'm just I'm thrilled to be out out playing live music for people. Well, for the most part, live music, but. Yeah, we, we did a talk back recently with some patrons uh, in, in Michigan, and they 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 loved it. Also, you know, mostly older audience, but they they really loved it. They loved the live band, and so you know, and I think it's it's real fortune to be doing this and, and playing music for people. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you call yourself a musical linguist, a person mm -hmm. accomplished in languages. Mm -hmm. Tell me, uh, where'd you get that? It's a very cool uh, way to describe yourself. Why do you think you? Why do you call yourself a musical linguist? Because I I was raised in, in a very uh, open-minded family that loved music. I was exposed to to everything you can think of. Lived near New York City, got to see so many different types of concerts: orchestral, ballet, you know, rock concerts, Broadway shows, and I just love it all. And and throughout my career, I've been able to 
to study with, to learn, to play with musicians and learn about music from all over the place. And I, I speak, I, I teach quite a bit and I, and I, you know, I started to talk to kids about this, that my students that music learning, learning styles of music is like learning a language, you know, it's not just like, you know, a lot of, a lot of drummers will like learn a beat and they'll, I want to play that beat and I want to play this fill. It's number five A here. And, and to me, it's more about learning the language and, the, and eventually learning the dialect and learning to apply that and, and learning in real time with the, with the music itself. And so I've had a lot of great opportunities to do that. And, uh, you know, I wear, I wear a lot of different hats. You know, I, I've, I've played out so many different styles of music and love so many different styles of music. So, you know, in my mind, I, I'm a, a multilinguist in terms of music. Well, where'd you grow up? In New York City? Uh, no, Rockland County in Pomona, New York. Uh, it's about 30 miles uh, north of uh, Manhattan. Did you have a musical family? They were musically oriented. Um, like I said, we, they were always, my mother was always playing KCR, you know, the uh, jazz station. She was playing uh, QXR, the, the, the classical music and Broadway shows. Um, and this is something I don't really talk about a lot. A part of my life that many people don't know about is when I was about three years old, we were traveling and my mother had been playing guitar, teaching guitar. And uh, there was kind of what they call a coffee house, basically like an open mic at this place we're staying at somewhere in Michigan, maybe. And they, they, she wanted to go sing a song the first time in her life. And she wanted to bring the kids and they, and they said, kids can't come in here. It's a bar. But if the kids sing with you, they can come in. So this light bulb went off in her head. And uh, we became a, a group called the Burger Folk. It just kind of developed. And so f from that point on until I, I left for college, and basically I was starting to play in, in a heavy metal band and kind of wanted to get away from that. But we traveled, and we also loved to travel. Um, and uh, my dad was a dentist, and, you know, it was, he didn't really like what he was doing, and he loved, to, he loved to travel too. So we would spend entire summers across the country, went over to Europe several times. My mother very ambitious and she loved the limelight my mother loved being on stage i think you know honestly a lot of this was my mother just wanted to be on stage and you know we we tagged along but we became this group and we started learning traditional folk music and sing-along stuff and we we played some amazing festivals folk festival of smokies with like earl scruggs and and we did some stuff in new york city with uh uh, Richie Havens and Don McLean and all these iconic people. And, you know, that part, being around that kind of stuff and that energy was amazing. And, uh, you know, I started to incorporate a little bit of drums and percussion. And we, we, we got signed on Folkways Records and did a couple of records. And I was able to play, I played drums on a few of those. You know, I, but, you know, I didn't really want to do it. And my sisters and I didn't really want to do it. But, you know, it was, it's like we kind of had no choice. And so, I don't want to paint the negative picture about it because it was kind of a rare and amazing experience. Um, but uh, it's, uh, you know, my, my goals were really to, to, you know, become like a quote unquote session musician and just play a lot of different music with different bands. And, you know, I was, I was studying music and doing all that stuff, but, you know, because we were always out singing, I couldn't do little league. I want to do boy scouts, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, so, once I got into music school, it was uh, it was like you know I, I'd say just I have a rehearsal you know or or be with playing with my rehearsing with my metal band and, and, and my punk band it's like I have a rehearsal I can't can't go and I just sort of you know my sister's the same thing I went to college and it's like you know yeah we, we got to study so we all kind of 
you know, we broke the band out. So to I, speak. I was about to say the bro- the band broke up. Well, <laughs> are there any uh, LPs lying around? Any eight tracks? Any uh... <laughs> uh, there? If you go online, it's just that's the the Burger Folk. There, I think we have three records. Um, and uh, yeah, feel free to feel free if you want to if, uh, if you want to. You know, my mother my mother got uh, a couple of copies of us for uh, CDs one Christmas, and I just put basically put them away. It's like. There's even some things of uh, of me before my voice changed singing, and uh, you know. Oh wow! Do you still sing? No, I mean once in a while, uh, you know, maybe a little background stuff here and there. But uh, yeah, that's. I mean, it's like I said, I don't really talk about that part of my life because it was, it was, it was a lot of it was good. I love the traveling and, and some of the festival stuff, seeing being around these amazing other artists. But it, but you know, my ambitions were to do what I'm doing now, and and I was you know. And uh, fortunately, was able to, you know, break away and do my thing. It's not my parents completely supported what I was doing. I mean, they bought me drums and, and lessons and, and all that. But, you know, it was just interesting, you know, part of my life that just sort of happened. And I'm going to go look for the Burker folk on, on YouTube, man. I'm, I'm sure there's probably some some footage out there. <laughs> I don't know about footage, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you said you were playing in the heavy metal and punk bands. Like, what got you into the heavy metal? And, and I'm sure back then. Your hair was down to your shoulders, or, or, or uh, yeah, you well, I tried. <laughs> I tried very hard to have big hair. I, I uh, my mom paid for perms, and I was trying to, you know, I was trying really hard to have the big hair thing. I just liked the music. I mean, Led, Led Zeppelin uh, was when I first time I heard that band it was just like, you know, John Bonham and that, and the, just the arrangements. It just it blew my mind. It was just the most beautiful thing I ever heard. And and uh, you know, we were playing some. Been playing some Kiss and and some uh, the Runaways and Rick Derringer. I love Rick Derringer. This drummer at the time, Vinnie Appice, really was incredible. Um, I don't know. There was just something about that music uh, that I that really resonated with me. I think the you know the the, the power of the music and the and groove, you know, and uh, so and then um, yeah, my first band was actually uh, was a band called Bandit. I was um, in high school and I was doing that. We had this interesting community theater. Uh, it's called a traveling theater. Um, the original shows by an amazing uh, composer named Shep Stern, who went off with great success as jingle writer, but he created this thing and there were these original musicals, really creative uh, shows. And we travel around, you know, you know, those, uh, those band shells they have in each town, they open up. So, we, you know, those mm-hmm. we play in the parks. And uh, so, I met the, uh, the keyboard player. I met him there. He was in the cast. He introduced me to his friend, who's a bass player, and we started this band. And the guitarist, I was in high, younger guitarist, I was in high school with Bird Johnson. He's, he's had a pretty, pretty uh, a decent uh, career uh, playing guitar as he got older. But uh, we started this band. We were playing like school dances and that kind of thing. And uh, and then that kind of became something else. So, you know, met some other musicians, and we kind of. Uh, the group was called Bandit, and then proper, uh, not proper, it, uh, Nitrous Oxide, that was the metal band. <laughs> With this giant whippet behind my head. And my, even though my dad was a dentist, they're like, call your dad, dude, we got to get some whip. I'm like, no, 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 no. And uh, one, actually, one afternoon, they got on the phone, they're trying to, you know, talk like adults, like, this is Dr. Smith, and uh, you know, we really need a, a giant stat. We need some, they're like, what are you guys doing? You know, anyway. We, you know, we play keg parties and, and, uh, you know, the first time the police came and, and shut us down, we were like, yeah, you know, we're on our way. So, uh, 
yeah, it was you know just just uh, another chance to learn learn some some more of uh, more languages of music that I really loved uh, resonated with me and uh, you know in the midst of all that I was you know I was I was studying I, I had a very interesting and fortunate background uh, my. Uh, greats. When I, I start, I started uh, reading music when I was eight. I'd been playing since I'm about two, just on my own. Just I don't know why. I just started banging on stuff. But in the fourth grade, um, I started reading music. And Joe Vasili, at Lime Kiln Elementary School, he um, he was had, had gotten a degree in classical percussion. So my very first music teacher was, you know was a drummer, percussions, which is incredible. Very strict, you know, classical kind of training. He taught me traditional grip and how to read, playing the band. And, uh, and it was just a, a little interesting tidbit. I mean, there's this one tune, I think I actually still have the chart. I don't know how it still hasn't, hasn't like gone into the ether. Um, there was one part where I was already playing drum set then, and I said, hey, would you mind if I play like a jazz beat on the hi-hat for this part? I don't know why I even like suggested this and just, you know, stupid little band tune. He goes, yeah, sure. So he let me improvise this little part, you know, in this, and uh, you know, he was like, just really, really cool guy. And then I went off to junior high school and this met, and um, band director there, Danny Sassente was, uh, had gone to Manhattan School of Music and studied percussion. He was the, so once again, we had a percussion ensemble, which at that time was a very rare thing, jazz band, he became my private teacher. So, I mean, two, 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 two of my teachers in a row, and he's responsible. He, Danny's really responsible for my career. You know, about, you know, a few years in, he's got me on timpani and mallets, and he said, look, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be a professional musician. You're going to work in New York City. You need to, I wanted to go to Berkeley and, uh, you know, and study jazz and, 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 you know, fusion and stuff I was starting to get into. And he said, you, you have that stuff pretty together, but you really need to, focus on getting a strong foundation in percussion. Um, and thanks to him, I, you know, you know, 40 plus years later, I'm still working, you know, and, and uh, what made you decide to go to SUNY Purchase? Well, it's a couple of things. I got into Manhattan School of Music. Um, actually, he he had me audition for his teacher, Paul Price, um, who's a legendary percussion teacher. And uh, um, I got into Manhattan School, but I had very I had just learned treble and bass clef, so basically it was an expensive school. My parents would not allow me to live in Manhattan. I had to commute from Rockland, and I was going to have to take zero-level classes, which means take all the fear, all the required classes, but no for no credit until I caught up to the level. Even though my, my you know, I got in as you know with my skills, um, I was waitlisted at purchase, and this is going to sound kind of funny, but it was serendipitous. I. Uh, I got in in August, I think it was. I got the letter that I was accepted to purchase. So my mom took me up to the campus, and it was a brand new school, only a couple of years old. I heard heard very good things about it, but there was a young young girl giving us a tour, and she said, "Here are the dorms." And all I all I could think of was, "This is my way to get out of the house, get away from the burger folk." And it was, you know, it was maybe a stupid, a stupid plan in the in the moment. I said, "Mom, this is the school for me. I heard it's great. It, the school was incredible. I mean, it's it was it could not have been better. Close to New York City. I studied timpani for four years, the Metropolitan Opera with the principal there, Dick Horowitz, who was just kicked my ass. And you know, I'm still playing, getting timpani gigs today because of him. Ray DeRoche, 
completely opened up my mind, you know, turned me from a, you know, a rock drummer into a musician. And uh, just the endless hours rehearsing with percussion ensemble, playing with or orchestras, it was, it could not have been, and I, I literally just, it was complete stupid leap of, leap of faith, I'll call it. I just wanted to get the hell out of the house. I wanted, you know, and it, but it could not have worked out better. Like I said, I, I was, you know, 18 years old. I had just barely learned to read treble and bass clef. I had played enough xylophone to get me into the school. They saw I had some talent, you know, my timpani playing was, was pretty good. But the main thing was my, my theory. Now, I was with people that had been playing cello since they're 12 years old. I was drowning. My, my freshman theory teacher was the utmost Mozart scholar on the East Coast. I mean, I was like drowning. I, I literally lost all my hair. It was so stressful, all that stuff. You know, I eventually sort of, you know, figured things out. But I, you know, it was, I mean, I'm literally going, you know, every good boy does fine. And these, you know, the people. One of the theory teachers would sit down at eight in the morning, he'd be pounding out Beethoven and he'd say, okay, drummers, let me see what you wrote down, you know, and we we're supposed wow. to like write down and it was just like, so it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of stress involved, but you know, no regrets whatsoever. The, and the other side of this is that it, SUNY Purchase back then was a state university. I was a state resident, Clayton. It was $4,000 a year living on campus with a full meal plan. Wow. You know, so it's like, that's the other side of the wide reason. I, I mean, I was certainly aware of that. Manhattan four, school was it's four thousand dollars a week now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember what this is. We're talking about 1978. I don't remember what uh, Manhattan school was, but it was it was really expensive. And anyway, um, and also, you know, the other thing is you you know, great 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 amazing training from my percussion teachers, and you. Uh, you have to do a junior, it's kind of like the equivalent of a thesis, I suppose. You have to do a junior solo junior recital and a senior recital. You spend the entire year preparing for this. This is huge, huge thing. You do so, a lot of solo pieces on mallets, on timpani, percussion ensemble things. Sometimes you conduct a piece and, uh, you know, this is the big party of grade. And uh, it's terrifying, you know. I mean, senior year, I, had to, I played a Bach, a Bach cello suite on marimba. It's solo. I was like... My, you know, my hands were like, you know, quaking. I was just, so I got through all that stuff, but there was this one intense theory course called uh, modal counterpoint, which is, you know, maybe it's, I suppose like the equivalent of trigonometry. It's just like, when I'm ever going to use this stuff, I don't know. It's deep, deep theory. I had to, I, I, I failed that class. I had to go back over the summer after killing myself. I had to go back and I was playing with my punk band, which was kind of on our way you know, getting some radio play and, you know, it's seemingly on our way. It was a really great band playing together for a long time. And uh, I had a job putting bicycles together at Toys R Us. I was just so depressed. It's like, and, and I had to, I had to take this theory class one-on-one -on -one with this nerdy professor who I said to him, how am I going to use this? Honestly, tell me honestly, when am I going to use this stuff? And he just, he just said to me very coldly, well, why didn't you go to breakfast for music? You know, and it's like, Okay, whatever. So I somehow, I don't know how I got through this class, but right place at the right, at the right time, one of my colleagues had gotten some work teaching theory, the clarinet player got uh, teaching theory at the school. And she said, hey, John, I just got a call. Someone needs a percussionist for this bus and truck tour of a show called Tintites. So I somehow eked through that class and I went on the road immediately. And I paid off my college loan <laughs> The show, it was a non-union bus and truck. And I like, in six months, I paid off my loan. And I was, I, 
So, you know, this, this, this is Broadway, uh, you know, one-on-one. Uh, this, this was the start. I had no intentions. I, I love Broadway shows. You know, I'd go see them. It was really cool. And I'd see guys in the pit. I thought that was kind of neat. So, yeah, it'd be fun to do someday. But, but, you know, I wanted to be a session player. I wanted to play with Weather Report or with Jeff Becker, you know, the police. You know, all of a sudden, I'm, like, playing this Broadway show. It was in drums and percussion and, uh, you know, a couple of older, older people in the thing that, you know, been around a little longer than I had. And I, you know, that was, that was how it all started. You know, what was the show again? Called Tin Types. It was a review, musical review. It ran, I think only ran about six months on Broadway. And it, it basically, uh, you know, the Tin Type camera it was an old, old camera. Yeah. So basically they would do these snippets of, from, from the, the 19th century into the early uh, the 20th century. They, they made like with snippets of time and they would kind of talk about history and that music. So it was a lot of ragtime stuff and some early jazz. Um, and, uh, yeah, got to see all of a sudden I'm traveling around the country and, and, you know, making money. Um, it was more money than I ever seen in my life. You know, it was like a whopping six fifty a week and per diem. And I was like, I'm rich. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I hear you. That's that's kind of how I started too, my, as a bus and truck tour of a show called Footloose and traveling around the country. And mm-hmm. I was making seven fifty. And again, I thought I was rich. <laughs> and I paid off my student loans. I'm like, man, it's Broadway thing, man. But then I get I, I abandoned all that. I didn't really abandon it. When mm-hmm. I got off of that tour, I did a show called Tick Tick Boom off Broadway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when I got there, I think we were making five five twenty five a week, and I was like, "Man, I'm in the city. I'm making five twenty five, and I'm doing a show." <laughs> but I didn't realize how big the show was going to be. And then, mm. anyway, no, again, enough about me. So you got <laughs> <laughs> you did you did you, you did the tour? Did yeah. you move to New York City right after that? I did. Uh, my best friends growing up uh, had an apartment, beautiful big apartment in Park Slope, Seventh Avenue, and and in uh, Flatbush and uh, the rooftop. And so I I moved in with them for a while. It was like enough, we, you know. What year was and, this? Uh, this was about 1983. Yeah, 1983. And uh, you know, I'd set up my drums in the in the, in the living room, and it was these are like like brothers of mine. And then, so it was, you know, we did this great hang for a while. And then I got my own place, uh, in Park Slope, a little further down my first, uh, my first apartment. Um, so I just kind of gave it a go a little bit in New York. Um, so what did you start and, uh, doing to try to meet musicians? Uh, the, the village voice. I don't know if people were, you, you were probably around for that, right? Yeah. So th- this is something that a lot of people aren't even aware of. You kind of see this magazine, but th- th- this uh, newspaper, it's a free newspaper and they used to have, uh, they used to have these ads, these uh, person, and, and I so I just methodically started going through, uh, and I would just go, I would just audition for bands, call bands, and audition for them, all kinds of stuff. Um, I just wanted to be musicians. I'd start going to jam sessions, the Blue Note, and there were some other clubs around the city that would have you know jazz and, and blues sessions. I, and uh, and I started because the my roommate on that tour was was starting to break into Broadway. He's a, a great woodwind player, and uh, so he kind of you know told me what to do, what not to do in terms of so don't bother people. You know, you can call guys up, maybe sit in, watch the, watch a show, but you know just keep keep track of when you call them. Don't don't call them twice a week. You know. So I started, I got I got very methodical. I think also because uh, you know I, I was collecting unemployment. And you're supposed to keep track of what you're doing. So I started. I think that I realize now is why I kept the list. Anyway, 
I auditioned for a lot of bands. I, you know, got played with some horrible people. I got into some some really fun, interesting bands. But uh, this is the this was kind of the real eye opener. Is my mother calls me up and says, "Hey, I just went to see Dream Girls on Broadway. This is the original production." She goes, "You know who Red Press is?" I'm like, "Red Press." She goes, He's at the time. You know, Red is actually in the '90s. Is still still contracts, but back then. He was like the king of Broadway. He contract. He was the top contractor. And I, and I, and she she said, you know, we we were Red and I were friends growing up. And I'm like, what? I said, Mom, I don't care about the story. Call him up. Anyway, so I went ahead and did that. She didn't quite get it. It's like I can't bother my mom with this. So I was completely nervous. I called him up and make a long story short, he said, yeah, you know, how's your mother? You know, he's like, how's your mother? And uh, so he said, you sound like a nice kid, sound like you know what you're doing. And uh, he said, why don't you come down? Um, you know, Nick, Nick Serrata is, is percussionist there. And, uh, you know, Nick was, uh, Nick was like also king of the hills, percussionist, legendary percussionist on Broadway. And he was also a conductor. If you ever watch the video of uh, West Side Story with all the opera singers, Nick is back there playing drums. Anyway, so he said, you come watch the show and, and you know, pick, pick a moment in the show and when you want. You know, you, whenever you're ready, come back and you can just, you know, sort of audition. He said, we don't really normally do this, but, you know, because the relationship with your mom from the past, you know, I sound like a good kid and, you know, kind of. So I went and I watched and this Clayton, this band, Brian Brake was playing drums and uh, uh, just it was like a who's who of studio musicians. At that time was, you know, may, maybe kind of rare in the pit. But this band, I mean, it was like electrifying. I probably have a cassette somewhere. I watched it about three times and it was the most exciting thing I've ever been in the middle of. So I, I was so inspired and I figured I did this tour and I graduated. You know, I mean, this is going to be awesome. You know, this, I'm going to get into Broadway now. This, and, and Red's being so nice to me. I felt, you know, it almost felt like an uncle, like, you know, give me a, a chance. So Nick was very, very nice. And uh, so there's this one big production number that I picked because it kind of covered all the instruments in the, in the you know, timpani and mouths and chimes and chimes. And then, uh, and I think I picked, uh, and I tell you, I ain't going on vibes, you know, Jennifer holidays and the thing. So, you know, I, I make a tape recorder and I go back to go up to purchase and I practice and I'm psyched and I'm feeling good about it. And really like, well, this is it. I'm going here. We, here we go. This is. And the day before, all of a sudden I panic because I had recorded on a tape on a, on a Walkman cassette player, which is that's all we had back then. Um, and I I didn't know anything about the scene. I didn't ever ask for any music. I, I transcribed. I just transcribed the whole thing. And I'm thinking, holy crap, these mallet parts and timpani parts. What? How do I know if my batteries were like fully charged? These might not even be in the right key. And secondly, at this point from college, I, I, I was really adept at learning parts, even really hard mallet parts. It's, it's kind of, I couldn't read this stuff that fast, but I could shed a lot and learn them. So I'm like, holy fuck, I'm gonna have to go in and read these parts down and hopefully they're in the right keys. I don't have the bloody music. I was like freaked out. Went from absolute confidence to like sweating bullets. So I go to the show, I call up Nick, I say, yeah, I'm gonna come in and I'm just like, oh, you know, I hope this is gonna work out. And I don't know to this day what's what's was happening, but I said, "Hey Nick, can I see that? I'd like to warm up. Can I see the music?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And then I kept asking him. He kept leaving the room, and it's like, is he like screwing with me? I don't. What's up with this? So then, like five minutes before downbeat, he hands me the book, and I'm like, "Oh boy." 
So I, so I sit down and I'm just quaking and, and they're going through the show. And then he says, okay, when you get this number, I'll move it out of the way you get up. So I get up and I start playing and it's going okay. But all of a sudden I'm like kind of flubbing some things. I'm making some mistakes. And I see the conductor like looking back and some people kind of like, and uh, so, you know, it went okay. It was production number. It wasn't terrible. So then comes the big moment of the show, Jennifer Holiday singing and I tell you I ain't going and I look at the page for this vibraphone part and I was so nervous it just looked like white I couldn't even see the notes I was like blind and what do I do I just play strong and wrong clank <laughs> clam clam not even close and 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 the, I, I kind of look up at some rest and everyone in the band has their heads down and I'm like oh fuck oh I'm, no I'm, I am done. The conductor is just like this woman, uh, Yolanda Segovia, actually related. She's granddaughter of the, the famous guitar player, famous uh, uh, classical guitarist. She's just like, I can see she's not happy. You know, she's like, so the act finishes and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, you know, feeling like about this big. And, and, uh, and Nick doesn't even know what to say. He's like, so John, so John. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, you know, you know, you, you conga playing was okay, and, uh, and I said, yeah, I guess the timpani. I said, I guess my timpani pit play was the timpani part was a little sharp. He goes, no, it was flat. And he goes, he goes, man, I don't know about your mallet playing, John. And I'm like, and at that moment, I said, that's it. Everyone in New York is going to be talking about me. This, this is it. My career's over. I'm never going to be played back. Play, and I, I left that place just devastated. Just and and the next day, Red calls me up and goes, well, I guess it didn't go so well. That's all he said, and I'm like, oh crap, it's, it, that's it. So this is going to sound funny, Clayton, but I don't, to this day, I'm not sure where I got this notion. Part, part, part of it was the strict training I got. I said I studied uh, timpani at the Met with Dick Horowitz. It was an incredibly amazing player and teacher, but beyond strict. And he wanted everything perfect. So, and I also had this notion on my head for some reason that if you wanted to play on Broadway, you never, ever made a, no one ever made a mistake. Like you weren't. So between all that stuff and this experience I had, I just said to myself, I'm not ready. So I, I went on the road for probably almost 15 years straight. And I kept telling myself, I was very fortunate because of, of the tours I did and people I met, I went from tour to tour to tour, you know, some really great stuff. I, I got the first national tour of Joseph uh, actually, Michael Keller was playing drums when we went to watch the show. He was a drum playing, playing drums a lot back then, and uh, it was a full pant for B. You know, it was like so. I was feeling certainly starting to feel better about myself because I was getting a lot of gigs. But in my mind, as I was doing one short show after another, saying to myself, "I'm not perfect enough yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not there." And it, it, it was, you know, kind of kind of a silly thing because, as we all know, we're humans. Everyone makes mistakes. But that's what I believed. That experience was just devastating. Um, so, yeah. So that, that experience, it made you realize that you just had to be much more prepared when you went well, to situations like that? Well, number one, you know, it's, it, it, you know, people are probably laughing about this, but you know, uh, I mean, number one, uh, get the music and you know, I, who knows? I mean, Nick, I later worked with Nick at cats and, uh, when I sub sub the cats and, and, uh, he was, just could not have been a sweeter, you know, more, more, you know, helpful person. But I, I swear, looking back, that he was like kind of screwing with me because maybe he just found it funny the way I was acting. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll come in. I, didn't, I left without even at, I taped it, but I didn't ask for music. You know, it was just like, 
yeah, obviously, <laughs> step one is is get the music. <laughs> indeed, indeed. How did you get around to subbing at other shows after that experience? I, I was very fortunate. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, uh, I was actually someone from college recommended me to, uh, I got the first national Joseph, which was that, that was, that was like a full pamphlet B and like real money. And I did that for about 10 months and actually, you know, saved a bunch of money. And, uh, and then, um, uh, my the same, the same roommate on the tour before was on, I got him on that tour and he recommended me to, uh, to a contractor named Bill Mead, who was, who, I don't know if you ever worked for Bill, Bill did was contract on Broadway for many, many years. Bill gave me so much work. Um, I, I started at a, an old uh, regional theater in Connecticut. You remember the uh, Candlewood Playhouse? I've heard of it. Yeah. It was in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, I believe. And uh, so I did a summer there and um, uh, an older conductor who was, who, was, who was a legend on Broadway named Don Pippen, he, he lived right nearby the place and he, his protege, Brian Lewisell, was, was conducting. Um, and uh, Don Pippen um, was a conductor at Radio City Music Hall at the Christmas show and then what used to be the Easter show. And Brian started working there for him, doing arrangements. So Don was there all the time at the Summerstock Theater and he would just, he wasn't being paid for it. He was just there and his protege was conducting and he would lean over and give advice. Like, why don't you play a stick and brush there? You know, this kind of thing. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was this, this, this uh, schooling that I got, you know, just the very, very, from a gener very generous master. And then uh, the, con the contractor, uh, he was there a lot, and sometimes if he didn't have a woodwind player, he would play himself. So we got to see what I was up to, playing percussion and, and drums and, you know, all kinds of, yeah, I did La Caja Faux and Brigadoon and Little Shop of Horrors, and, you know, he was kind of really seeing what I was made of, and I'd play a lot of different styles. So he sent me to Europe to play a chorus line, um, and it was, that was, uh, at that point, that was um, 1990. The show had just closed on Broadway after 15 years. So we had the original director, choreographer, I, and I was sent in to, to uh, do the re dance rehearsals. So, you know, I got to be there for, for a lot of that, you know, hear about the process, how the show was originally developed. And, uh, you know, just working with more and more musicians that were on the scene. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one thing I just wanted to, to offer as advice to people out there is a lot of times people ask, how do you break in to the Broadway scene? And I think, to only focus on drummers and percussionists is it's limited. You know, I, I found a lot of this stuff is just working with other musicians who are, you know, subbing or playing shows and conductors, you know, it's all, it's all part of the connections. So, um, so I ended up doing like seven different tours, uh, back and forth, uh, for, uh, in Europe, this producer named Wolfgang Bosch and, uh, um, all, a whole variety of stuff. 42nd Street, Crazy For You. I met, actually met my now wife, who's in the cast out there. Um, I got, and then this was a great one, really in my wheelhouse, is I did a concert version of Jesus Christ Superstar. And the orchestrator was David Cullum, who's, who's Andrew Lloyd Webber's orchestrator. He was there. He, these were handwritten charts. And he was there for every rehearsal. And that was, that was just incredible. And plus, that, you know, it was like, that, that show's amazing. That was right so much in my wheelhouse. So that was Wonderful. I was just feeling really, really, really great. I mean, it taken me all that time. I really felt like myself and getting feedback and, and compliments from someone like David Cullum. 
Plus, with that show, he gave me a lot of leeway. He allowed me to like, you know, even though this these certain grooves were a certain way, he allowed me to just, you know, sort of come up with parts for this version. So I approached Peisty at that time, and uh, I went to the, the factory out there, invited some of the staff. So so they said, when you get back to to America, they you know I, they were gonna give me an endorsement deal. So you know I I felt like it, it took me all that time to sort of like feel. Uh, you know, really confident about myself, you know, and, and really see what, you know, what, what my strengths were. Um, and uh, so, and then Bill sent me out on a couple more U.S. tours. And eventually, um, one of them was a tour of the show Big, which had, had closed on Broadway, and they redid it. Really, really fun. Very different from Paul Pizzuti had done the show on Broadway. Very, very different version. I mean, the opening of, of this tour version was like like a Tower of Power team. It was just some screaming big band stuff was really really great and uh the conductor on that was ben whiteley so i don't know if you ever worked with ben he's an incredible conductor and ben was one of the conductors of cats and he said you know you sound great when you get home call ron tierno and i'm gonna tell him you know you to have him call you to sub so uh this is it's interesting how life works so i called up ron He's very nice. And he said, you know, I don't need anyone right now, but stay in touch. So a couple of months in, I, I get a call. He said, are you ready? I'm like, okay. Um, at that point, my wife had moved in with me. Well, yeah, I guess we were married by then. Were we? Yes, we were married. And she was very pregnant with our first child. And we were also bought a house, you know, in, in, a, in a good place. Um, she, she was a rockette for two years and then retired for dancing, got in a wardrobe. And so we, uh, our life was going pretty well. We bought a house. She was very pregnant, and somehow or another, I, uh, I I managed to like learn the book. And thanks to my old friend, my old roommate on the road, he's just like you just practice till you can't stand the music, and then practice it even more. And he said, just like have it, it's got to be practically memorized. He said, and I kept. I, Ron was really really sweet. I, I I owe Ron so much. I mean, he he gave me my first chance. Very helpful. Um, he figured out all the times I can go in and practice on his drums and. And I'm sure you've experienced this before. Ron's about my size, like incredible, incredible drummer, great finesse and feel. I don't know how he played the show that way. His his setup was so weird. His ride cymbals this way, and everything felt like like this, you know. So I at home I set up all my stuff, you know, that way. But make a long story short, you know, I went in, I you know, and I I I did great. Ben was conducting the show, went really well. This is. 15 years later, the percussionist was, was Nick Serrata, who was standing over me in Dreamgirls in 1983. Oh, uh, wow. So, first of all, the show, had been, this was the last year of the show. So, the second I finished playing, you know, I don't know if you experienced this, but, you, you know, you, you feel good about your first show and then no one says anything. wasn't even beyond that. It was like, like you know, cockroaches scattering. I looked up. Everyone in the pit was gone after the last note, and only Ben and, and Nick were standing there. Nick comes over to me, puts his arm around me and says, he doesn't know who what, he doesn't re remember, remember I, I said, I thought everyone was talking about it. He had no idea who I was, puts his arm around me, goes, now that's how you play a show. You sounded just like Ron Tierno. That's great. So I went downstairs later and I told him the story about dream girls. He fell on the floor laughing. He goes, <laughs> talking about you, no one ever makes a mistake. Huh? And he goes, welcome to Broadway, man. Uh, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was <laughs> If 
you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. You know, she started a whole new career and, and then Ben was telling he did great and, and I told him all this stuff. I said how I, you know, I avoided it. He's like, what's wrong with you? you should have just come, you just do it. You know, anyway, he's like, I'm glad you're here. So, uh, yeah, I just started freelancing more um, in town and then uh, I actually walked dogs for six months. You know, I wanted to keep keep the money going at a house and a, and a baby and um, and then while I was walking dogs, Bill, Bill Mead called and said uh, he got he gave me my first chair on Broadway. It was the timpani chair, timpani tamale chair on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever, excuse me, Saturday Night Fever. So that was my first, my first show. And he said, you know, Chris, I, the legendary studio drummer, Chris Parker was our drummer. And he said, uh, you know, I told Chris, you're a great drummer and I want, want you to sub, you know, he, 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 he so I, I had the timpani chair and he said, you know, you're going to sub for Chris as well. So, uh, and that band was, that was a blast. I mean, that was a who's who of the best of the best studio musicians. It was just so much fun. And, uh, and I met a lot of conductors. And the, the wonderful thing about that, as far as establishing myself in town, is that not only these, you know, Henry Aronson, Ron Melrose from the pit, and, uh, you know, great, great conductors, and, and uh, John Samorian, um, and uh, all these other players. But, uh, you know, people are seeing me play a percussion book. And actually, Chris's mother had some medical thing happen. I ended up going in two weeks before uh, I had to play my first show. So, uh, and there was some kind of put-in rehearsal going on. So I, I actually got a power cable, their V-drums, and I like plugged the things in myself. I had to learn, I had to just scramble and, and get the show together two weeks early. And the dance captain came down. She goes, listen, we have a rehearsal up there. I said, Listen, I don't need to be rude, but if you want a drummer tonight, you got to let me practice. Just do your thing. I got to, I got to play through the show. I played from ten in the morning till downbeat, you know, to make sure I had it together. But you know, people, people were seeing what I was capable of doing, so it, it kind of, you know, helped me. And then Francisco Centeno was our bass player, and he he recommended me to Warren Oates, who, who was doing Susical. So you know, I started from these connections, started to like, you know, slowly get in into that scene. And, uh, 
you know, and try my best, my, you know, with my, with a, with a baby, and, uh, I try my best to not go on the, on the road. So, you know, that's kind of the, the timeline a little bit that was happening. Yeah. So in town, did you do Fiddler on the Roof and Gypsy and mm-hmm. Flower Drum yep. Song? And mm-hmm. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, a whole, whole, whole variety, of, variety of stuff. And, and, uh, and then when my daughter was two, I don't think I went out. Uh, yeah, when my daughter was turned two, I got a call from Michael Keller directly. And he said, uh, you know, I uh, said, so Joe Moa is leaving uh, this tour of Cinderella and he recommended you. And uh, it was a pamphlet B, you know, a ton of doubles, big, big drum and percussion book. And I said to my wife, you know, I leave you at home with a two-year-old, but Michael Keller's calling me, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And she's like, take it, you know, I'll, I'll be fine. So uh, it was a great opportunity. As I said, Michael's, Michael's a, was a drummer and I, I thought, you know, working for him and him really seeing, I just recommended that him getting reports back on my plane is going to really help me. Even though I really didn't want to leave town, I was worried about that because all, we all know you lose your place in line. And so what ended up happening is, look, look, I, it, it sounds funny, but I, I owe Bill Mead so much, you know. I mean, he gave me so much work, gave me my first show. I, you know, met my wife and started, you know, getting endorsements on gigs he was on. But, but he, he was, uh, there were definitely issues. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like it was, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but I felt like it was time to sort of connect, not only connecting, really connecting with Michael Keller. So about the day before we leave, Michael Keller says, um, listen, uh, this conductor is driving me crazy. I'm leaving the tour. I'm like, what? So I'm like, look, I, it's already, the, the contract's already done. So uh, I went out, so I go to meet the conductor and, and, the, and the cast, and the, Bill Mead was back on the gig. So anyway, it was fine, you know, what are, what are you going to do? Um, but it kind of worked out. I went out and did that. I did that tour, you know, saved, saved a bunch of money. And uh, then when I came back, uh, Michael really wasn't playing drums very much, but um, he, uh, he was Marvin Hamlish's. Um, is it Marvin Hamlish? Mm-hmm. Spacing out. Yep. He was Marvin Hamlish's drummer, the musical director. He used to do pop, pops concerts with them. And uh, Marvin had this show. It was a play with music. Um, and, uh, so he said, listen, I'm too busy. Uh, he, he insisted I play drums, but I need subs. So I started subbing for him and Ron Melrose was the, was the musical director. Ron, uh, was, uh, was the, so was, uh, uh, playing keyboards in Saturday Night Fever. So, you know, once again, like kind of full circle and, and, you know, and, and playing now playing drums for Ron, another scene, another, another side of me there's, uh, and so, um, yeah, it all it all kind of kind of worked out, and then uh, I might be you know skipping some some shows in between. But uh, Jersey Boys came into town around 2006, kind of skipping ahead. But the entire rhythm section came from San Diego, and the drummer Kevin Dow and Ron Melrose was the uh, conductor, and he, he said, I, "I don't know anybody," and so Ron said, "Call John Berger." So I became the you know the first sub Jersey Boys. Um, and, uh, and then uh, they asked me to do the tour, but I, I turned that down. And, uh, and then my friend Mark uh, Papazian was out on the tour. Mark, Mark started calling me to sub tour one. And then tour two happened. So I was at that point, I was subbing on three different uh, tours. The, the drummer on that, on tour two, was suddenly having tendonitis issues. Um, and so I would go out on kind of emergency calls 
And then eventually I took over for about four months. He had to leave the tour. So I did that for four months. So, you know, that Jer Jersey Boys. And today, I, I, you know, then when the show closed on Broadway, and it's now on Off-Broadway, it's, it's like close to 14 years I've been working on that show. Also, at one point in the run, Kevin got a call from, from the orchestrator, Steve Orich, who said he was premiering a new show down at the at Oswald Rep in Sarasota and needed a drummer, so Kevin recommended me. I'm trying to think, 2009 maybe? And I met uh, musical director Aaron Gandy. Since then, the three of us have done so many recording projects, shows. We premiered another show down there called Beatsville. And then uh, last winter, it was a rare, you know, uh, outdoor show. I, uh, my wife and I drove down. Um, Steve was musical directing that one. And uh, so, you know, thanks to Ron Melrose, meeting him in 1998, it's fever. I mean, it's just like, he's got, it's generated so much work, um, you know, and, uh, and now, you know, uh, and I'll talk about it a, a little bit later. I have this new show, uh, off-Broadway show, Romeo and Bernadette. This is Steve Orich's show. So this is, uh, you know, once again, this is, this is all connected to, to, uh, to that show back in 1998, you know, meeting, meeting, uh, the, the Ron Melrose, you know? Um, so it's, uh, yeah. Well, I'm just going to list uh, a bunch of different shows that mm -hmm. on your website you've played. Mm -hmm. Adam's Family, Next mm -hmm. to Normal, In the Heights, Jersey Boys, Taylor Two Cities, Les Mis, Pirate Queen, Color Purple, The Grinch, Fiddler on the Roof. I'm just naming a, a bunch of them. Hello, Dolly, uh, My Fair Lady, Saturday Night Fever, of course, Off-Broadway, Jersey Boys, uh, and others. But let me just ask you, do you have a favorite musical out of all? Uh, probably, probably the two. Say one. I think probably the two are in, in the Heights, the big, 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 uh, uh, big, big one for me. That was that was a wonderful. Uh, that it's hard to say one. That next to normal was amazing. Damien created just the most incredible book. It's a hard hitting pop rock and these beautiful things on mallets and, and uh, in the Heights was a whole other thing. But uh, the book that Andres Ferraro. Uh, Ferraro uh, Created was just incredible, and uh, plus I got to play there all the time. That was that was something else. And then West Side Story is another one. I've, I've done many productions of that, and that's that show that that musical is just it gets me every time. Just so so beautiful. I, I'd say those are the, the top three. Um, yeah. So you've done so many shows on Broadway, on off Broadway, and on tours. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the most important thing that a drummer should know to be a success in this business of Broadway? I think staying open-minded. Um, I'm not saying you, you really should play this style of music or that, but, but I think ultimately as my, my uh, mentor and growing up, you know, instilled in me is, is train as much as you can in, in many aspects of music, make yourself well-rounded. I think being well-rounded and open-minded um, and, and trying your best to get experience in, in these styles of music, um, and I think something I tell, I tell uh, people all the time is if you get tasked to play a show, no matter what the production is, uh, don't just learn the music. You know, if, if it's a style of music you're not familiar with, even, even if you spend a, a couple of days or, or a week, you know, try to, try to learn something about that style of music, about that language. You know, immerse yourself as much as you can. You know, go to a jam session. If it's, you're not used to playing jazz, you know get your feet wet and so you can speak that language because it's only going to bring the music alive. You know, of course, as a sub, 
we're supposed to play exactly like the person. It takes an unbelievable amount of, of, of time and effort to do that. But I think the more you immerse yourself in that style of music and that language, it's, uh, you know, I mean, we've all been there. We're just, you know, you're trying to learn something. You can learn the notes, but it just doesn't feel right. It feels kind of stiff because we don't understand, you know, what is it behind this? Why, is, why does it feel this way? Why does it feel that way? Um, so I, I think, I think uh, you know, trying to immerse yourself as much as possible in the different styles of music that are required, I think that's really, really going to help you in, in the long run. You've done many shows. You've had many experiences. One of the things that happens when you play a show as a sub, especially, you get notes after the show. We, and we mentioned that earlier as far as mm-hmm. getting a notes from your first show. But you've gotten many a notes afterwards, I'm sure, because no, mm-hmm. like you said before, no one's perfect. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you get notes and you're like, you know, that's not right. I, I played it right. Do you, do you, do you accept it and, and say, you know what, I, I, maybe I did it wrong? Or, or what's your approach in, in receiving notes from a conductor? Well, I, I, I learned, not that I did this a lot, but I, I, when I was younger, I, I would tend to be a little bit combative. The, the very first tour I did, the, the conductor was very inexperienced, and we kind of butted heads because I, I was, in my mind, much more experienced than she was, and the band kind of laughed at some of the things, that some of the suggestions she made. Uh, so didn't really have the respect, but I, I was too green to know that it doesn't matter what her background is. She's the conductor. So... You know, I, I kind of learned the hard way there. And I, I so so since then, I, I think, as many people have said in your podcast, you just say, yes, thank you. You know, um, the, the wonderful conductor at uh, Off-Broadway Jersey Boys, he, he, he likes to send the email notes. And I just, every time I get them, I just say, thank you. You know, and I just I mark them in my music, you know. And still, after all this time, still get notes and, you know, there. And there's very specific things they want. And you just say yes. And, and you know, just be humble. And, uh, you know, um, and I, 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 did a, I did a wedding with, with a trumpet player one time who had gotten fired from some show. And, and he, he, was, he was really mad. He goes, that freaking conductor was, kept giving me notes. <laughs> I was just started laughing. It's like, uh, yeah, and? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's funny. You know? yeah. what, do you, what do you think, uh, you know, a drummer should always do when subbing in a Broadway pit? Uh, num- number one uh, is, is figure out how to negotiate the music and any possible juggling you have to do, picking up a tambourine, a shaker, whatever, but to always be able to see the conductor and figure that out. That's, I was actually just helping a friend who's, who's doing a show to be a local percussionist on a, uh, on a production, actually your show. Me playing percussion, your show in Detroit, and and I said just part of the choreography is looking at the conductor and turning pages. You got to You literally have to practice that. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's really really important. Um, also, setting up your page turns. This is something that this is like the first thing you should do. It it, it doesn't matter how the, the the drum you're subbing for sets it up. That's fine. This is one thing that, that's totally your own is, you know, I use an iPad now, but, you know, if you're using paper music, you've got to go through the book, you've got to figure out whatever's going to work for you. Uh, you know, whether you're going to do full sheets and drop them on the floor, or you're going to do a binder, and you've got to figure out, you know, you can put back to back or do, do pull out things and make all the markings, that, and you have to practice that stuff. You know, and for those that are playing drum set and percussion, 
you know, sometimes you have multiple books. I don't know if you've experienced this before, but you know, while you're playing, you got to turn pages here and pages there. And it's, it's, you have to practice that um, and watch the conductor. This is like, you know, you, you have to, especially as a drummer, you know, you're, you're making the sound of their baton and you have to follow anything can happen. You know, you, I'm sure in your show, you, you, you play the same way every night and all of a sudden, Something happens, the actor skips a line or the set thing, whatever. And it's like something you played the same way is gonna shift. Also, we get these conductor videos nowadays, very helpful, but you're watching one version of the show and you, you nail that. But then you play your first show and the associate's up there and does something differently. So you gotta, you gotta figure out all that stuff so you're not gonna be thrown off and you can just eventually play comfortably. Um, I, I, th I think this is, uh, this is really key. And one other thing that I think I cannot stress enough is, uh, is find out when you can go to the theater and, and practice on the gear. That's like really, really important because something that you realize the hard way is you sit at home and you learn the show and you have it set up exactly like the regular guy on your gear, but you get there, their pedals are different. Their bass drum tuning, their tom-toms, their cymbals, their, the sound in your ears, it can be completely disoriented. I've gone to shows just totally confident and relaxed and I play the overture and like the guy's got his thing cranked up way loud. I can't hear the, the vocals and you know, the cymbals are too splashy. I'm like, it, it, can, it takes a long time to get acclimated. So, you know, sometimes you can only get through an act at a time. Most of the time you can't really hit the drums very hard. That's like kind of a big no-no. You've got to sort of even play with plastics, but you've got to get used to the gear. You know, and before the show, go and warm up every show. Even if you're playing it for, you know, eight shows a week for the last two weeks, just you got to warm up because that's like really, really key. Uh, uh, I spoke to a couple of guys, that, you know, well-known guys who've subbed a lot of shows. So like, no, I just learned the show and I go in and play it. I, I mean, I have no doubt they kill it, but it's like, wow. I mean. Yeah, that's taking a chance. I, yeah, man. I've said this about Damien Bassman's drum set. And his snare drum mm -hmm. is like, like at a 90 degree angle. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You just can't go in there and play. Oh, I, and then you see it. You're like, oh my God, I, I, how do I do this? And you got to get used to that. And I used to go in when I was subbing for him at SpongeBob, the musical, I'd go in and it would be dark in there because I try to get there as early as possible in that, in that pit at that time, it was completely dark. I had my, my <laughs> cell phone flashlight just to go in there and, and just get used to it. And then they turn on the lights, of course. But by that time, it's an hour. You only have an hour left to like get acclimated with it. Then you got to leave, and then somebody's coming in to play. So yeah, you definitely have to get used to the drummer's drum set. It's well, very, I'll, very I'll tell you another thing I learned is for a long time, I started bringing in my own bass drum pedal. And uh, you know, actually, uh, in the heist, Joel Rosenblatt was one of the subs there, and I, I thought this was really smart. I never did this, but Joel used to bring in um, his own drum stool. Um, you know, the, the setup in the Heights was just, I mean, it was, it was like a mini Terry Bozio setup, but so much stuff. But I thought that was really smart just so he doesn't have to deal with like working on the, he just, he had the thing set at a height, you leave it in the locker there. And it's kind of smart. Anyway, I started bringing in my own bass drum pedal um, because I, I think I, I tend to, to keep my tension very loose compared to a lot of people. So at Adam's family, I don't remember what there's this one tune where there was this one spot where you just had to play a lot of notes in a row. And Damien had the, the drums tuned pretty loose. 
Um, you know, you kind of had to dig in to really, you know, get a sound. Anyway, it's it's, it's his touch. He was able to you know, play them beautifully. So I went in the first day to rehearse, before my first show to rehearse, and and even though I was playing this lit fine at home, and I realized that not, it had nothing to do with the pedal. The tension of his bass drum was so different than mine. It was like, and I, I said, "What are you doing?" And I stopped doing that. I said, "I I I also need to get used to the pedals there." And uh, the same thing at Jersey Boys, uh, he, the bass drum, the drums are on stage for that show a lot. Most of the show, um, you know, on these movie platforms, you were, you were like almost the star of the show. It was just the way the thing was. You're on these platforms, you're there playing and moving around. Anyway, the, he had the bass drum wide open, big 24-inch bass drum. And he had the, those kind of like, I don't know the model, like the Yamaha, like sort of student line pedals, very soft beater. So I started bringing my pedal in, and the, the conductor who was downstairs was, was talking to me, and he was always saying, bass drum's too loud, bass drum's too loud, but less bass drum. And I was like, then I realized I had my DW9000, you know, compared <laughs> to that. I was like, dude, what do you, what's wrong with you? You know, and then I didn't, I just said, okay, okay, okay. And it was like, it was a struggle because I was having to play, plus the bass drum was wide open, like I said. I was having to play so soft, that it, was, it was hard to play the show. I was like, my foot was started shaking. I'm like, crap. So then it dawned on me, you idiot, just use the pe regular pedal. And, you know, Joe Bergamini subbed over there. We always talk about it. It's like, it's really hard to play, you know, even like on Who Loves You, to play those, those 16th notes in there. It's hard with that pedal. You know, Kevin was a big dude, big feet. He could do it. Nonetheless, you know, the point is you, you have to just figure it out and get used to all that stuff. And even after so, so much time playing the show, still, I think now that I had to go back and get used to that pedal. But the interesting thing is, long and short of it, is that when I went back to using his pedal, I never got that note again about bass drum being too loud. Mm, interesting. So, you know, you'll, you, you'll, you'll live and you'll learn. Um, but I have to say, I might think about that thing that, that Joel Rosenblatt did with the, with the seed. I think is kind of smart. A lot of guys have rock and sock, you know, the hydraulic that makes it easy. But if not, rather than then be uncomfortable at some, you know, funny angle. You bring in your own seat, you know, why not? You know, so, you know, but uh, I, I don't know how much you, you've, you've struggled with that kind of thing of really getting your touch, you know, right on someone else's gear. Is that, has that been a, an issue for you? Well, speaking of Damien, though, Damien has a very unique way of playing, in my opinion. It, not only mm -hmm. the angles of his drones, but he doesn't hit very, very hard, but he gets mm -hmm. such a big sound out of the drums. He just, that's just the his touch is just something about it that's fascinating and me mm -hmm. i'm digging into the drums and sometimes that could be overpowering and you mm -hmm. can get you can get notes to, you know to bring it down a little bit so you get you have to get used to having the approach that the drummer has on the show and using mm -hmm. their gear and the way that they use it and it's it's very tricky at times especially with somebody who has like you said, a, a bass drum pedal that the tension is a completely different. So something that you got to like experience and, and learn as you're going, but definitely uh, try to get used to their equipment and play the way that they play. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it was something that I got frustrated with talking about notes and I, I never really, I, I never really complained about it at all, but it was frustrating. Uh, Andres Ferraro, uh, just absolute virtuoso player in the Heights, he played with such ferocity. I, I once went in and changed the snare drum head on the snare drum. It looked like a soup bowl. I mean, 
he hit so hard. He, you come in and symbols are cracking. I mean, just, and he, he's like a petite guy. And it was like, I call it the Hulk. His arms would, his muscles, I mean, just unbelievable. Like a Latin Vinny, Vinny Colliuta, just incredible. And uh, so, and a couple of times, uh, you know, I get comments about the energy is dropping. You know, <laughs> this is, this is one of my favorites is, is my friend Joe Mowat was playing uh, uh, one of the percussion books with Subby and I'm playing drums. And the dance captain comes down. He goes, hey, how's it going, guys? Go good. Oh, okay, nice to meet you, dance captain. He goes, you guys are subbing today? We go, yeah. He goes, hey, man, check it out. We're Latino. We, we're dancing to the rhythm. Don't screw up. And Joe and I were like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like, they're like, there's no joke. And I, I, there are many times they're like, man, you know, uh, you know, the energy, you've got to keep the energy up, man. And it was, you know, Andres, I don't know. He took off a lot. I mean, sometimes I'd play eight shows. I'd go in for one show, and I'd end up playing, finishing the week. I, I was there all the time, and uh, it was great, but it was, it was, it was a lot because he played with such ferocity. But the interesting thing is I felt I knew the show backwards. I you know, felt really good about it, but when Alex Lacamoire left and Zach Dietz took over, he kept telling me I was playing, hitting the tom-toms too hard. And I was like, I would say, okay. And, and it was like, after all this, I don't know, it was, I don't know, maybe two years in, he took over, something like that. But I was sort of baffled by that. By that. And it was like, it was a real adjustment. And like, like you said, everyone's got a different touch, you know? I mean, I don't play the same as Andres. I, I tried, I played the show as close to he, as, as, as close to as he played it. But it, in terms of the touch and his drums, you know, it was like, really? I'm hitting the tom-toms too hard? It's like, you know, he, sometimes he would come, he'd be in town, he'd sit outside and he'd go, John, you got to dig in, man. You got to dig in more. He would, he would tell me, you know, you're not, come on, man. I don't feel any commitment. He'd said that to me a two, few times. Like, okay. All right, fine. Whatever you want. And then I get a note, tom-toms are too loud. So sometimes, you know, and you just got to say, okay, all right. And just try to adjust. It's, it's, you know, this is kind of what we have to deal with at times. And, and, you know, sometimes, honestly, conductors will give you conflicting, conflicting information. I've had conductors say to me, I, you know, I want you to play something a certain way. And I've been playing it the same way. He said, you know, check with the drummer and the drummer's doing it, always doing the same way. I'm doing the same way. So all I literally, all I did is I, when I got to that spot and looked them in the eyes, all I did. And they went perfect. I didn't do anything differently. The point is that, you know, the, 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 I think Tommy Ivo said in some, in some uh, interview years ago, he said that the conductor is always right, even when he's wrong. And that's, you kind of have to take that approach. That's their gig, their musical director. You're not, you know, it's not, you're not the band leader. It's like your opinion doesn't, it, your, your opinion doesn't matter. You know, you, it, it really, you can talk to the bar with the guys in the band, but as far as getting notes, it's like, okay, okay. And you try to sometimes have to interpret what it is that they're trying to, Sometimes they're not very very articulate. Someone like Alex Lacamoire can speak to anybody in the pit in their the language of their instrument and give you the most. Hey man, when you're playing those inside parts of the snare drum, man, you know that. I mean, just unbelievable, specific, clear direction about your instrument. But other people, they, you know, that they, they'll just you don't know what they're talking about, and you say okay, and you try to you try to figure it out and make it make them happy. You know, even if it's a, I mean to be obnoxious, but sometimes it's just a matter of just looking them in the eyes, giving them the confidence that, that, you know, you're supporting them. And sometimes that's all it takes, you know, so. Exactly. What advice would you give to someone that's interested in playing in the, the pit of a Broadway show? 
recently I had a couple of young drummers in, in music school that I want to break in. And, you know, what I tell them is just work. So there's a lot of local theater and a lot of us play, play school, play school productions. A lot of these high school and middle schools, like they, they hire professional musicians, like just get out there and play shows because everyone needs to work. These, these shows, these regional shows are all populated by people that are working on Broadway or are going to work on Broadway. So just get the experience and just work, you know, um, it's good to have a goal. I want to play on Broadway, but you know, um, there's also there's there's a lot of experienced people out there that are, keep getting called, and people are on the same sub list for the same players, the principal players, and you know it takes time. So you know, just get out there and work, you know, and play plays gigs in general. Just be out there. Uh, you know, I, I've invited, I've been able to have you know some great drummers come he hear me play before I was you know on the scene, and uh, you know sometimes you can you know end up playing gigs, playing a wedding with, with some sax player for a Broadway show and, you know, down the road. So just work, you know, work hard on your instrument and your craft and, and just, you know, it, Manhattan is, uh, is like 13 miles long. So, you know, both good and bad reputations, you know, travel very fast. So just, just, you know, keep your head up and be positive and just work as much as you can. And, and again, just work very, very hard on your craft. Um, and I, I want to share something with you. Some uh, our, the drummer Chris Parker. This was long before we worked together. Gave me some of the best advice I think I've ever had in my life. When I first moved to town, I used to go to a, a great jazz club called McKell's. Was that around when you were? Yeah. It was um, just about to close when I came. I came in '93, and it was. Mm. I should have gone, but I heard mm. so much about it. Yeah, it was a wonderful club in uh, Columbus. I think it was Columbus Avenue in the '90s, and uh, just mostly kind of like, you know, Afro-Cuban and, and fusion stuff, stuff, advanced stuff started there. Chris Parker and, you know, working with, uh, alongside the Steve Gadd, all, all kinds of amazing people. Anyway, I went to, Chris was playing with a, a group, kind of all-star group, and I started chatting with him. I was brand new in town, and, uh, and I was just asking him, you know, basic advice. I remember exactly what I, what I was, you know, talking about breaking in the scene. You know, studio work was kind of happening at the time. Anyway, he said to me, he said, you know, I get the impression, you know, you're, you're well-schooled and know what you're doing. And he goes, you know, everyone, every professional in this town can play. He goes, but it's beyond that. He said, get your, get your people chops together. And at the time, I, I, was, I was really pretty insecure, shy, shy person, you know. And uh, he, he must have sensed something about that. But it, this is advice that I'll, I'll never forget. He said that... When he first came to town, he, Will Lee was a good friend of his, I think from up in Woodstock. And anyway, he said he, he was like a rock drummer. He couldn't really read very well. He, he didn't really have a lot together. But he said Will saw his potential and liked him, and he kept telling people to hire him. He said essentially people are going to hire their friends. They want to have a good time in the bandstand. And, you know, and so he wasn't necessarily saying, you know, learn how to schmooze, but it's just like, you know, get your people chops together. That's like really, really key. You know, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think being on the road, like, helped a lot with that because you're, you know, you're stuck in a bus with these people you wouldn't normally hang out with. And you, you know, you kind of learned how to be a diplomat and how to work together with people um, and, uh, you know, not, you know, not be a weirdo and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's I think think that's 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 really important. And um you know, learning how to sell yourself. This is, this is a tough thing because we represent ourselves for the most part, you know, 
if we're lucky enough to you know work for certain contractors conductors they might you know advocate for us which is you know it's happened a lot for me but you know people call you up for a gig it's like hey clayton can you play this gig this is what it pays and you know or I got recommend you recommended to me and you, know, you have to figure out in the moment what to say and what to do or if you just call someone up for work you hear about you have to how to sell yourself and how to be a you know i think based on what chris said i think people remember your personality more so than if you're a positive person and you're easy to work with and flexible and you work hard you're on time and you know like this old contract you used to say and, and wear clean socks then uh <laughs> then you know people are gonna you know, like Chris said, they're going to hire their friends in, in, in essence because they remember, you know, this this person more than this guy's got great chops. He can read his butt off. You know, it's that's not that's all, that's that's important, of course. So, yeah. Get your people skills together. I like that. <laughs> that's a that's a good line. Thank you, Chris. I recently became a f- member of the Peisty family, and I know that you've been with them for a long time. Mm-hmm. What other endorsements do you have, and why do you use them? I, uh, well, first of all, P- Pisces was my first endorsement. Um, they're just a good friend of mine described them as, as musical instruments. They're more than just symbols. They're a very innovative company. They're constantly you know, reinventing themselves and, uh, and, and extremely versatile and musical symbols. I, lo- I love that. And, and uh, also, just incredibly down-to-earth company. Um, and uh, the next thing I got, the next endorsement I got uh, through a friend's recommendation were Vader sticks. And I just really liked the way they felt. And uh, I met them at Modern Drummer Festival, and it was I, I mentioned my friend's name, and uh, the A&R guy at the time just shook my hand, and he said, we, we don't sign contracts. He just shook my hand. He goes, you, you like our sticks? Wonderful. You know, send me your resume, and, you know, and he said, if, if you don't like them, that's fine, too. Uh, but just, it was like a Anyway, uh, and then um, then uh, I signed on with Remo Heads, which I've been playing my entire life since I'm a child. Um, and uh, and then I got uh, and then my friend John Vanessa, who who was a sales rep for Peisty at the time, um, he moved on to DW. And he introduced me to them. And I, I, you know, a lot of rehearsal studios in Manhattan, I played on their, played on their drums, really liked them, like the way the drums sounded, especially the hardware. I, I really love their hardware and their pedals. And uh, so, yeah, I signed with them. And uh, so, and all these companies, the thing, the thing is also, of course, this gear is, is, is important. I, I play the gear and I like the gear. It's well-made, but, you know, what's important to me is to all these companies, they, they have all these like rock stars and these masters that, that represent their product, but, but they have these, you know, Pisces hangs and DW hangs at SAR and they, they treat everyone equally. It doesn't matter. I've called up a garrison at DW. It's like, Hey man, I'm, you know, this like wing nut broke. He like went into the, into the warehouse and put it in a bag for me and sent it to me. I mean, this is, this is also their, you know, they got their people, their people skills together. <laughs> people chops are good. So, you know, that's, 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 you know, all really, really important. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, uh, is equipment's expensive, you know, you know, cymbals and drums last a little bit longer, but, you know, heads and sticks, you know, I mean, I was going out on this tour. It's like, you know, I need a couple of boxes of this and that and, you know, bang, you know, there they are. And, and it's, you know, you get a nice, uh, a, a nice generous discount and, uh, you know, and, and the, but these are all great products. I, I recommend, highly recommend and, uh, you know, 
glad glad uh, to have the support. So, so you're on tour right now. Are you working mm-hmm. on any other musical projects at the moment? Um, just today, uh, I, I did a recording. I um, when the pandemic hit, I got together the home recording thing and learned all that technology and started recording for people all over the world. And so, there's a record called Jazzical Comitas. It's uh, we kind of collaborated with American and Armenian musicians. Someone I, I went to college with, uh, virtuoso pianist named Joel Martin. So Jazz Go Comitas just uh, was just released today, um, and uh, you know I, I actually posted the info on my on my Facebook and Instagram. And um, my show Romeo and Bernadette. It's an off Broadway show. Uh, we did a limited run before the pandemic, uh, before everything shut down, and. The fun little show uh, that started to get some some great reviews, and the uh, producer announced that six weeks later we're gonna we're gonna move to a bigger house. We got a union contract negotiated with, between him and, and eight hundred two, and then everything shut down. So we are coming back. Um, it's called Romeo Bernadette. We're gonna be at uh, Theater Five 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 on Forty Second Street. Previews are May third. Um, we open on May sixteenth. Uh, right now, it's a limited run till the 26th of June. He's determined to move us to Broadway, so uh, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but um, just it, it's a really fun, really funny premise, uh, and, you know, great cast. And once again, working with Steve Warwick and Aaron Gandy, uh, you know, it's that Jersey Boys connection, wonderful music team, great band. And uh, I just got called to... to um, to do uh, a thing at Town Hall. Actually, the day the day I land, I'm doing rehearsals for uh, called Broadway by the Year Town Hall. Something that they do a couple of those concerts every year, and they it's a big, big uh, uh, extravaganza with a lot of dancers and singers. And they they basically you know it's like a history of of Broadway in different periods. Broadway by the Year. So I'm going to be doing that on the uh, 20 the 21st at Town Hall. So it's a one night one night thing. Um, and like I said, they're, they're planning on some, some future dates with, uh, uh, rock and roll dream tour. If any of you out there are listening, uh, we, we have a couple of shows left. We've been playing the villages, uh, in Florida and then keep the stage in Key Largo. We're ending there. Um, and then tomorrow night here in Newberry, um, South Carolina, we have a show tomorrow night. So, um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've been recording tracks for people at home drum drum tracks for people so um you know i'll pro- probably uh, be doing some more of that and teaching you know I, I have some private students and i i started teaching at a japanese private japanese school near me in um, in england new jersey um so uh, i teach there a couple of classes a week there and uh yeah that's uh that's kind of what's 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 happening so where can people find you on social media I have a website. I really should be more updated. It's it's lowercase John Berger, no H J O N B E R G E R on drums, plural. Um, dot com. That's my that's my website. And uh, um, yeah. And then uh, you know I'm on on Instagram. So it's J O N no no H. Well, I'm I'm very happy that you have this show coming up, and hopefully it will go right to Broadway because. There are a lot of open theaters right now, so I can, you can just pick yeah. one. <laughs> well, thank thank you. If you if you want you want to go ahead and pick one for us, I'd appreciate that. You know? <laughs> tell them we're tell them we're coming. <laughs> yeah, pick a small one so you run longer. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, it, honestly, it's 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 a wonderful show, but it's so small. I mean, he he's been the producer's been around in this a long time. He said, "I'm an old man. I I, I haven't done this before." So it's his prerogative. I mean, I, it'd be nice. I'm not going to say no, but it's it's a very small show, and uh, you know, but but come come see us. It's 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 really fun, interesting premise. Um, Romeo and Bernadette. It's uh, so uh, yeah, May May third uh, previews and May sixteenth we open. So uh, great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to uh, chat and learned a lot about you. And I'm I'm going to go and search for that burger. Was it Burger Family? <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I have friends from back home. Like, yeah, I remember the Burger Folk. I'm like, what, what yeah, is that? Burger cereal folk. bar? The cereal bar? I never heard of that. <laughs> what are you talking about? Don't do not play. Don't don't be posting those those songs and me singing. When I'm 12 years old. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. <laughs> You're like reported to Facebook like this is misinformation. <laughs> That's right. Fake news. <laughs> yeah. Plus that kid, look at all the hair that kid has. It can't be <laughs> that can't, exactly. I, That's not me. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's so nice to talk to you, uh, Clayton. And I, 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 I'm so honored that you, you asked me to be a part of this. I, I, you know, some of my absolute favorite, you know, drummers that you've had on this podcast and you know, friends of mine and some of my people I look up to. So I'm, I'm so honored that you asked me to be a part of this and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, hopefully I'll see you, see you on the block. We'll be in touch soon. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Broadway drumming one-on-one podcast. Head over to the Broadway drumming one-on-one YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.